been with us regularly know that we are working through 1 Timothy, and from 1 Timothy, the uh, general uh, pastoral epistles that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. But events sometimes intervene, and things happen that um, cause us to want to hear from God in, in uh, perhaps a little bit of, if possible, explanation. Um, if not possible, then guidance and comfort. Um, the events of this week were obviously for the Freitag and Hartman families uh, very difficult. And they cause us, as they always do, when such things happen, to ask the question, why? Why, why did this happen? It was thoroughly unexpected, even by the doctors. Uh, there was no evidence or indi indication that anything would go wrong with the pregnancy. And yet, um, God's providence, God's will, uh, was that October Phoenix Freitag would uh, go home to be with his Lord before he went home to be with his parents. Psalm 139 is a psalm of great comfort for all men, especially those who know the Lord. I want to read a passage from Psalm 139, verses 7 through 16. David writes, Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as the bright as the, is bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you that you know us as well as David writes, and even more so. You know us far better than we know ourselves. And we thank you that we can take comfort that you knew us from before the foundation of the world and placed us in Jesus Christ that we might know you through him. And you who formed us in our mother's womb have recreated us to be in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that the spirit of comfort and of light, the very same spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, might be in us and around us to shed light on our lives, to give us light to our paths, that we might walk in righteousness and truth for your glory, for our good, 
and for the exaltation of the one whose name we bear, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Miscarriage is a common occurrence. Less common in our day than in past, but nonetheless still amazingly common among medical conditions. And I find that um, as a pastor, when I'm in the midst of these circumstances, it is remarkable to see the way the medical world responds to the woman, to the, to the man, to the father, the mother, whose child has been lost. We live in a world, as we all know, where abortion is legal and the child is considered to be uh, tissue, uh, disposable. There are those who would, uh, who, who would make um, an industry of the birth or the conception of children. But when a child is endangered, when a child is lost in utero, still in the mother's womb, both our medical professionals and our legal code view that child as a person. And again, in the case of Tim and Jenny, once again I saw the compassion, the feeling of the medical personnel around them. When I was there and, and saw the hugs, the tears of the nurses, it made me once again realize that in our society, the only thing that makes a difference between a fetus being a person and not being a person is whether or not the mother wants it. And that is a very horrible world to live in. We know instinctively, even those who are not in Christ know instinctively that from the moment of conception, we have a child. We have a person. And these are times that remind us of that fact. And yet, when that child dies, either in infancy or in utero, we ask the question, why? Why was it the Lord's will not to allow that child to come into the world? And that's a natural question. And we're told by some historians and anthropologists that there was a time when men didn't really care. Women didn't mourn the loss of their children. That is baloney. There has never been a time Eve mourned the loss of her son while he was living, of course, Abel. The loss of a child has always been felt keenly because of the knowledge that we have, perhaps that innate knowledge given to us at creation, that this child was created in the image of God. This child within the womb, as we read, was fashioned and formed by the hand of the Lord God Almighty. And so when that child is lost, we know it not to be simply a medical condition, but a death. And we ask why. Now biblically, when the question why comes up, you, you think of the, the passage in, first, in James where he says that that God will give wisdom to whoever asks, that pure and peaceable wisdom that is from above. And, and then maybe you go to that genre of scripture that is called wisdom literature. And, and you read it in the hopes of finding out the answer to your question, why? But I have found over the years that the 
the real beauty of biblical wisdom literature is that there isn't always an answer. It doesn't suit well oftentimes with our Western way of thinking, but God is not like us. His thoughts are far above us. His thoughts are, are past finding out. And as Job realized at the end of his ordeal, there was no explanation, only praise to the glory of God. But we turn to, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes and, and perhaps get the perspective of Kohelet, the preacher. That book is often viewed as fatalistic and depressing. I don't find it that way. I think the only reason we would find that is if we are actively seeking a specific answer to our lives and to particular questions within our lives, as Kohelet was, only to find out that there really aren't such answers. The answer that he found is the answer that, that man can only find, and that is God himself. But in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet writes that it is better. Those who have died are better than the living. And even better than both, there's the one who never existed. Why is that? Because Kohelet says he has never seen the evil that is done under the sun. And so oftentimes at the loss of a child, especially one that is still in the womb, we think, well, he will not see the evil that is done under the sun. And there, there is truth to that. There's a great deal of evil in the world that we see, a great deal that our eyes wish not to see, but we also know that there's a great deal of joy. There's a great deal of love. There's a great deal of beauty that we see, that by God's common grace is permitted to us to offset the evil that is done under the sun. And we still ask of the child who dies in the womb, why will he not be able to see the joys of family, the beauty of God's creation, the love of his parents, and we still are left with the question, why? And this question is, is instinctively, it's innately a religious question. I mean, we can hear the medical reasons, but we know that, that God is the one who, who not only forms the child in the womb, but as we just read, he is the one who has set every single day and written them into his book before there was yet one of them. Tim and Jenny will meet with the doctor. Tim and Jenny will hear if there is anything medically behind the loss of October. But we know, as, as Tim and Jenny know, that it was the will of God. It's innately a religious question. And the church has attempted to answer that question over the years. The Roman Catholic Church, in trying to deal with the loss of children who were unbaptized, came up with the, the theology of infantis, limbus infantum. Limbo is what it's called. These are, this is the place where those who, are, who die unbaptized in infancy, it's neither heaven nor hell, but a place of eternal bliss, somewhat of an elysium of thoughtlessness and painlessness. 
But they're dealing with the matter as if the church itself were the source of all salvation, which is what Rome believes. And therefore, if, if a child is not baptized, the child is not in the church, and they cannot accord to that child the blessings of salvation, but they cannot bring themselves to condemn that child to hell. And really what it comes, what it comes down to, and that is, where is the soul of our departed child? Presbyterians sought to answer the question when they gathered at Westminster in the 17th century and they came up with one of the classic theological tautologies of all time when they said that the elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ. Well, of course they are. They're elect. If you're elect, then you will be saved. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? Because God has not given us to know whether our child is among the elect. Now for the Presbyterian, there is the presumption that the child of believing parents is among the elect, and yet that cannot be proven biblically, and as often, even within Presbyterian churches, proven to be false. One of the distinctives of Baptists is that we do not make that assumption. We do not assume that our children will be believers simply because they are our children. And so for us... Perhaps the pain is more acute when we ask the question, where is the soul of my child? Or in my case, my grandson. I don't rest on the pronouncements of Westminster and certainly not on the edicts of Rome. We rest on Scripture, which is a firm and solid foundation. And we ask, what does the Bible say? I will say, as a punchline to the sermon, we do have hope. We have a strong hope. But that hope must be grounded in truth, or it is nothing more than a wish. And all of us wish that all of our children will be with the Lord. The parent has, has just as strong a desire for the children who survive infancy and who grow into adulthood to come to the Lord as to know that the child who dies in infancy or even in the womb is indeed with their Lord. We have that wish, but can we ground that hope in truth? I believe we can. From Psalm 139, we lay a foundation of our faith that teaches us that life does indeed begin at conception. The medical community cannot, cannot find a point between conception and delivery, at which point they can say medically, life begins here. We know, as God has told us, that His Spirit has known us from the very moment of our existence in the womb. At that moment when He began to weave our form together, He who created us in Adam creates us in our mother's womb. But it's, it's, it's more than just the mechanical biology of gestation because God says I I not only put you together I have known you and that word biblically to know is one of the most intimate relationships that can be conceived he knows the one that he frames that he puts together in the womb 
verses 13 through 15, he says, Thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. But it's not, again, just the biology. Because before that, in verse 7, starting this section, he says, Where can I go from thy spirit? He mentions heaven, he mentions Sheol, but then the writer takes us into the womb of his mother and says, even there, even there, thy spirit has known me. And we read elsewhere, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, we know that there are some that God has set apart in the womb to be his prophet. From Galatians chapter 1, we know that there are the, some that God has set apart within their mother's womb to be his apostle. And these are not isolated examples. These are simply men who are acknowledging the truth. And that is that God knows each one of us in the womb. And when we do experience a miscarriage, we know in our hearts that he has ordained some to be his without ever becoming ours. The key to these passages is the truth that God knows us. His awareness of us and His purpose for us does not wait until we're born. To the question of viability that the world throws out at us, we answer that there is none viable outside of God. No matter what age the person may be, Viability is life in God. And that child in the womb is viable to God. And the days that are ordained for that child are already written before there is even one. We don't like, we don't like it when those days amount to 15 and a half weeks. And yet we know that those days, those short, short days, were already written in God's book before there is even one of them. And so God's purpose is as it is at all times. It is fulfilled. God knows us in our womb, in the mother's womb. But does this mean, and this is the struggle that the church has had. Does this mean that all infants who die in infancy, does this mean that all infants who die in utero, in their mother's womb, are saved? Westminster Confession actually answers no. By limiting in their own minds, in their own theology, those that will be saved to be those who are of the elect. The question can be turned around and asked, is it possible that death in infancy indicates that one was of the elect? What the church has tried to do, both in Rome with its Limbus Infantum and, and Presbyterianism with its Westminster Confession and other churches with their doctrine, is that they have tried to, they have tried to, to make a distinction between infants who die in infancy within the pale of Christianity and those who are outside. Allowing those who are within the church to be saved and denying those who are outside as if there are no elect born into Muslim families. 
There are no elect born into Hindu families. There are no elect born into Jewish families. Do we not know that's false? Because we know that there are Hindus and Muslims and Jews and atheists who come to the Lord, who manifest in their life that they were indeed written and known by God before the foundation of the world. So Rome says, only in the church. But Westminster says, only the elect. Do we have a better answer? Well, I think we do. But as many things that are mysterious in Scripture, it is not a direct answer. Paul gives a very interesting self-analysis in Romans chapter 7. We know that passage is the passage where he is wrestling with the sin that dwells in his members and causes him to do the things that he does not want to do and prevents him from doing the good things that he wants to do. And he ends by saying, oh, wretched man that I am. And there are those who deny that this is autobiographical that I don't understand as I read their commentaries where they're coming from. This is clearly Paul talking about himself, and yet he's talking about himself as a paradigm. He's talking about himself as a man. And therefore, he's talking about himself just as he is talking about us. What we read Paul going through, we have all gone through. But a passage in this section, Romans chapter 7, that is frequently overlooked, rarely developed, is verse 9, where Paul says, And I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin became alive, and I died. Our theology has taught us, and I think properly so, in fact I know properly so according to the Bible, that we have each and every one of us born naturally, meaning having both a father and a mother, are conceived in the sin which Adam introduced into humanity and into the world. It is called original sin. We are taught theologically that from that sin we inherit death. Romans 5 teaches that. That because one man sin and in him all sin, therefore all die. But then an extrapolation is made. And I, I think, perhaps you haven't thought about this, perhaps you have. But we have concluded that in Adam we have all inherited condemnation. Now I would challenge you to study this as Bereans. But I do not believe the Bible teaches that. I think the scripture teaches in many places that every man will stand for his own sin and none will be condemned for the sin of another. That death, as Paul says, reigned over all men, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam. And the evidence of Adam's sin remains with us through the evidence of death, which is the last enemy that we're told Jesus Christ will defeat and put under his feet. Death is our inheritance but is condemnation. Paul says, I was once alive. And for Paul to be alive and to say I was once alive 
can only have reference to his standing with God. That he was in right standing with God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is life. That is being alive. Those of us who are now in Christ, we were dead in trespass and sin. And by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now alive. And so for Paul to say, I was once alive, and then I died, brings him around to Romans 8, verse 1, where he says, in Christ there is what? No condemnation anymore. He's alive again. He was alive. The law came. The knowledge of good and evil came. And because of his inheritance of corruption through Adam, he died. He sinned. But that teaches me, and I don't know whether it teaches you, but I offer it to you for consideration, that there is indeed what is called frequently an age of accountability. That while we know that every one of our children is conceived in iniquity and born in sin, that does not teach us that that child from the moment of conception abides under the wrath of God. For God's grace has ordained that every man shall be accountable for his own sin. Not the sin of Adam, not the sin of the fathers, not the sin of the ancestors, but his own sin. That gives me great hope, and a hope that I can extend beyond the walls of the church. A hope that God is God throughout the world, over all people, and that he knits each one together, some as vessels of mercy, others as vessels of wrath. But he knows everyone conceived in every womb, regardless of the circumstances of their heritage. October Phoenix Freitag, by God's providence, did not come to the age where the law came into his life and he died. We have no answer as to why God chose that to be, but great comfort in knowing that October Phoenix Freitag was not unknown to his Lord. And even in the 15 and a half weeks of his personhood, of his life in, on earth, he was formed and purposed by a holy God who both knows him and loves him. His death came from Adam's sin, his eternal life from Jesus' righteousness. Our hope rests on the truth that he who formed us and knows us from the very moment of conception does not form us in vain, does not create us simply to destroy us, but rather to love us. And so I conclude with David, King David. He will not come to me, but I will go to him.
Let us pray. Father, your grace is magnificent. Your ways are indeed past finding out, and we do not desire to set our minds on things that are above us, but rather that our hearts would be comforted by what you have revealed. And we thank you that you have revealed to us in your word that you do not wait until the moment of birth to know us, but rather you know us from the moment of conception. That even though we can explain medically what goes on in the gestation period of a child in his mother's womb, yet we know it is you who are knitting together and weaving together that person who has an eternal soul, an immortal soul, from the moment of conception and forever. We do ask, Father, that you would comfort Tim and Jenny. We ask that you would comfort this body as we all, to some degree, feel the pain of the loss and yet rejoice in knowing that the one whom you have chosen to take is with you. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And we long to be in that presence. And ask, Father, that by your Spirit, in each passing day, you would give us a greater measure of that joy through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this evening from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.